Far enough 
Listening to Astral Projection Radio Hour on BFF.fm, Best Frequencies Forever. I'm She Wolf. And I'm Beatrix Gravesguard. We'll be casting witchy vibes and sonic spells until 6 p.m. So gather around, light a candle, and levitate with us. You just heard Shade with Skin 
Before that was Kate Bush with The Sensual World. Starting off her show today was Bat for Lashes with Honeymooning Alone. We have a very special guest with us today. Virgie Tobar is here. Yay! <laughs> Hi! Hi, Virgie. At long last. <laughs> <laughs> We're so excited to talk with you today. And uh, right before the show, we normally research our guests and pull a bio from, um, you know, their their website or, um, you know, their web presence. And we copied an, an extremely long bio for you. <laughs> <laughs> and I can read your bio or I can offer you um, the opportunity to introduce yourself. Yeah, I think I'm going to introduce myself. Am I, is, is it now? Yes. yes. Do it. Go okay, it. well... So the thing that I, I guess I would start with is I'm the author of You Have the Right to Remain Fat, and I have a new book coming out in May called The Self-Love Revolution, Radical Body Positivity for Girls of Color. Ooh. Um, <laughs> I do a lot of speaking and writing and educating around the issue of weight-based discrimination, fat phobia, the history of diet culture. And, um, yeah, I mean, I've been doing this work for about eight years and it started when I was in grad school. Um, I was researching the intersections of gender, race and size, and it sort of became a really major transformation for me, um, as someone who was deeply impacted by being a fat person my whole life, um, and living in a culture that is really anti-fat. And it sort of started out as research and then it became this this tra personal transformation and then it became my job. So I, I would say that's my bio. Yeah, that's incredible. <laughs> Thank I you. also yeah. want to mention that you are the founder of Babe Camp and you are the um, you started the campaign Lose Hate Not Wait, the hashtag um, on social media. And you've been published by a number of um major media sites such as Forbes, New York Times, BBC, MTV, NPR, San Francisco Chronicle, the list goes on. You have a very uh, star-studded yes. resume. <laughs> thank you. People are hungry for your knowledge. <laughs> yes, thank you. Yeah, I started writing for, um, contributing for Forbes Women um, in 2018. And so that's another, that's another thing that I've been doing. That's really interesting is sort of talking about how weight affects work for women mm -hmm. and also how, um, the plus size industry is evolving and changing and how it's shifting the world of fashion. So that's sort of a new foray for me in a lot of ways as well. What have you noticed about like the evolution of this conversation in culture? Over, over your experience? Yeah, I mean... Or what's well, like stayed the same? What's changed? What's changing? Yeah. When, well, I was introduced to 
um, before body positivity became sort of a trend, I was introduced to fat activism. That was sort of what existed. You didn't have like an option of like, you're either going to become a fat activist or you're going to be into body positivity. Um, they were kind of the same thing slash there wasn't really an emergent conversation. The term body positivity was around, but it 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 was not a re- really regular part of the vocabulary. Mm-hmm. That was not how we talked about what we were doing. Um, and the the group that I became involved with and learned everything I learned about what I know now and what I do now, um, they were a group of primarily queer people who were anti-assimilationists. Um, they had a really strong, robust grounding in queer anti-assimilation and liberation politics, which are really, you know, I mean, right, like these, they're, I mean, a lot of people don't know this, um, but they the demands were really clear right the end of fat discrimination the end of doctors refusing to treat fat people um the end of like you know fashion companies not uh, making clothing for us and I, I think more 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 so even than that was this idea that society was oppressing and discriminating against this particular group of people along multiple margins, like um, mm. along multiple access points. So like a lot of these people weren't just women or just femmes. They were also fat. They were also working class. They were also queer. They might be trans. They might be like somewhere on the gender spectrum. And so the idea of just caring about fatness was not something that was ever part of my mm. political upbringing. Um, so I think that what one a lot of times what happens is like politics get reduced to one single issue and that only works for people who are privileged in every other aspect except one. Um, And when you're talking about people who are like living multiple marginalized identities, which all of us in that space were, um, you really begin to see major problems with the culture. And so this is where the anti-assimilation piece came in where it was like, we're not demanding acceptance we're going to be radical and we're going to be amazing and we're going to be fabulous and we're going to be unapologetic and we're going to be entirely unrecognizable to mainstream society because they're not even going to know what hit them. Um, and and so that was kind of the the tradition um, out of which I came and learned all this stuff. And uh, there was a very, like we were very, 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 re- like really clear about how um, fat people needed to be at the center of this conversation around body justice. The fact that um, the higher weight that you were, the more marginalized you were and the mm-hmm. more focus we need to put, we didn't need, needed to put on offsetting the experiences of discrimination you were having. Um, there was also um, a really big um, sort of, I don't know, like there was a huge premium on being very, like very aware of diet culture and dieting as something that not only didn't work, but that was actively hurting people. And that was an active part of trying to eradicate Mm. fat people Mm. as a group. And so what you see now, I mean, like, so, you know, that that kind of happened. And then um, I, you know, I could kind of sense and I don't know how I knew it was just like intuition, right? Like I could sense that this issue that these that this what this group was doing was about to blow up. I could just feel it. Um, like I was like I said, I was in grad school and I just met met this group of people and I was I just felt like I had found the magic mm. like so, like the fountain of youth or something i was like oh my god <laughs> you mean i don't have to like dieting doesn't make sense i can stop dieting like oh like this just this was a big deal both as a woman and as a fat yeah. person i had never considered this like no one had ever suggested this as a possibility and so i was like oh my god the minute that 
the minute that like a significant percentage of the population figures out that we don't have to do this, we we're going to change history. Um, and so because right, like diet culture relied upon complete and utter ignorance. Yep. And it re- yeah. They're fucking scams. Yes, <laughs> totally. I mean, like, right. The, the diet industry as a business has relied upon chronic failure. Yep. For the duration of its existence mm-hmm. and the fact that people would use these products, they would fail and they would blame themselves. Uh-huh. The entire financial model is based upon that cycle. And so, mm-hmm. right, like the minute that that became that the culture on a larger scale became aware that this was kind of a scam. I think that we did see the reverberations of something really powerful. And we started to see, you know, a shift. Um, so right as grad school was ending, we started to see, I mean, this is when the emergence of social media really started to happen. Like a lot of, and and the, the transition, I would argue, a lot of people don't know the history of fat activism. Can I share it with you? Yes. Please. So it kind of started in, the, the official start date is considered 1969 with the establishment of the National Association to Advance Fat Acceptance, which was started by like a white dude. Um, and his, his argument was essentially, as the title suggests, was acceptance, right? Like we need to make legal changes to the system in order for fat people to be able to be integrated into society. Um, and he created this national organization and then chapters could emerge all over the country. They could just apply to become members um, or become a chapter. And there was this one chapter in Berkeley, California, and it was primarily populated by Um, feminists, but specifically people who were coming out of the radical therapy movement. Mm. And the radical therapy movement was, in case you've never heard of it, um, is a movement uh, within and among therapists that um, we needed to let go of the, that, that like essentially pathology occurred in an ecology. It wasn't like someone just happens to have a mental illness and we need to, they're deviant and we need to bring them into the fold. It's like, no, trauma is real. Abuse is real. Intergenerational experiences of, of like, a, you know, of addiction are real. And so a lot of pathologies occur within an ecology and we need to treat these things as if they exist within an ecology mm-hmm. of oppression and like history and whatever. And so this was considered radical therapy. Um, mm-hmm. And and they started to get really interested in pushing the boundaries past acceptance into liberation. Mm-hmm. Um, what would it look like to not just change the laws, but to radically sort of assert like, I'm not going to be here on your terms. Um, and, you know, the NAFA president caught wind of this very quickly and was like, not super happy about it. Ooh. He was like, you guys need to, reel it in because this is not you're not on brand right now and instead of obeying they actually decided to rebel and they they were like well we're not going to be part of NAFA anymore we're actually going to be our own thing and we're going to call ourselves the fat underground Um, (laughs) (laughs) and so they started to like I mean from there you started to see the connection really becoming clear between like lesbian feminism in particular, and this was like the 70s, 80s, 90s, um, and fat activism, they became kind of really conjoined. Um, And they started to do a lot of um, different kinds of activism. Like they had a group called Fat Lip Readers Theater where they would do like all fat theater in which they would reenact the situations of like being a fat person on the street and being like catcalled and stuff like that. And and verbally bashed and stuff like that um they had like a singing group that was dedicated to singing songs that they had all written original songs about fat oppression and how to end fat oppression they would do like sing-ins right and then there was even things like um this group called let it all hang out which was a bunch of um fat queer women who would get together 
at the Castro Muni station in tiny shorts <laughs> and yes. like with a boom box and just jiggle. Uh, oh, that's just so good. to do- <laughs> Why don't I bring that back? Yeah. I live I right by there. Yes. Yeah. So it was like, you know, so those kinds of things. And then um, from that, uh, like in the 2000s, you begin to kind of see the emergence of um, like blogging. Uh, and you also see a movement kind of away from like a second wave informed lesbian feminism to more of a queer politic. And that, and again, fat activism is occurring within that space. Um, and so uh, there was this uh, live journal called Fatchinista, which was all queer fat femmes mm-hmm. posting OOTDs, outfits of the day. And giving love to one another. And right, like a lot of the clothes was thrifted or or traded. I mean, I think there was a lot of history of like anti-capitalism and a lot of like repurposing. And and I think a lot the ethos of lifting each other up in a way that society didn't do for do for queer people, especially if you're fat. Um, and they were doing that for each other. Interestingly, um, because they were femme presenting um, at, and as the Internet proliferated, a large number of straight women um, were beginning to find these women, find these queer femmes um, and had sort of mis- fundamentally misinterpreted their queer femininity and were just like, oh, my God, cute fat girls and cute outfits. How inspiring. And um, and this kind of in a lot of ways became like this was, in my opinion, like misinterpretation of that liberation. Mm. Number one. Um, <laughs> and, and then I do feel like the emergence of body positivity all kind of came from that initial misinterpretation of a queer gesture. Um, and so and I think this is where you begin to see a real and and you know even for a few years after that the only game in town really was fat liberation and you kind of had to play by those rules if you wanted to be in that space and then but as more and more and more people got interested in um you know the idea that you could be fat and be fabulous and be cute and you know have an amazing love life and all and wear, eat whatever you wanted and be on Instagram and whatever um you begin to see the the eventual kind of like watering down of the politic and it's sort of mm-hmm. then all of a sudden i mean even now one of the biggest arguments is like well can't you still be body positive and pursue weight loss and it's like this was never this was not a conversation that was even like we didn't even there was no question about whether or not weight loss belonged in this politic um we we actively saw the diet industry as something that harmed people and certainly i mean when you look at the data dieting is not correlated with anything positive and it's Mm -hmm. absolutely not correlated with weight loss Mm -hmm. (laughs) um so you know it's like and we kind of we had a very grounded um i think like fat activists had a very grounded approach in looking at the actual data mm. and um and and finding that it didn't it didn't yield what the what discriminatory discriminatory attitudes were saying it did um anyway so you start to see sort of like more people who are largely not interested in critiquing heteronormativity but sort of just want access to more privilege mm. um and 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 using and seeing that positivity um and what became body positivity as an anecdote to feeling bad about yourself while still pursuing privilege so it was like okay how do i not feel bad about myself as i continue to not critique heteropatriarchy <laughs> um and pursue privilege mm. and i mean i think that's a very like right that's like the total that's like you know the most cynical breakdown of it i think most people are somewhere on a spectrum um around sort of like i mean i think certainly 
as the movement has increasingly become detached from its queer centrality and its queer politic, um, you leave room for a lot of the uncritical consumption of of like attitudes that are actually really harmful and problematic. Um, yeah. Anyway, long answer. <laughs> yeah, that's great. No, I, I um, have in my mind been drawing a lot of uh, parallels between what you just talked about and kind of this movement of uh, the witch toward like the peak witch capitalism mm, that we talk about, you know, yeah. like tools that were used by marginalized communities to yes. heal uh, when those structures weren't available, now kind of like entering this this very commercial, um, like, you know, quote, empowerment phase. Yes, right? empowerment, yeah. Like empowerment doesn't always come with like a um, a policy change or like a, yes. a, a kind of like mindset change. It's like, hey, buy the stuff and, and feel better about yourself. And Yes. Yeah. Well, empowerment is the privatized version of justice. Mm. And I think that, this is what I this is what we see a lot of in body positivity. And I mean, I, I want to give people a benefit of the doubt and and offer them, you know, like I think that body positivity, I mean, fat activism, fat liberation was always about recuperating their relationship to the self at the core. Right. To recuperate a sense of love for the self and to feel to feel better. Um, but it never stopped there. And I think that this is what happens to political movements. They hit a certain tipping point and then all of a sudden capitalism becomes the only point of intervention for that politic. Mm. And it is really unfortunate because it's sort of it's by design. It's disempowerment by design. Mm -hmm. um, essentially, right, like people, you give them um, an option to buy or click or hashtag something really quick and and they're going to take that option right because i mean it just makes sense uh like right but at the end of the day we actually have the right to demand culture change we as a collective have the right to request right for policy change um for any number of things and uh and when we kind of we kind of stop with the personal like I'm going to feel better. I'm going to work on only feeling better myself. Um, of course, that leaves an enormous emotional. I mean, rather like I mean, it, it leaves an emotion like an enormous moral gap um, because often. Right. And this is the thing that I've often even the title of body positivity. I mean, I use it to be to be totally fair. I use it. But one of the questions I have is I'm like, for whom is body po for whom is positivity a resource mm -hmm. for people who already have access to a lot of things. At the end of the day, any political movement was started because it was supposed to be an antidote for people who have very few things, who have very little access to resources. And pos positivity is such a high order resource. It's such a like when you think about like the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, um, it's like it is so high on the hierarchy. And I think it's easy to forget that there are many people who don't have access to clothing, to you know, appropriate humane medical care to any number of things, which I mean, fat people experience and a lot of other marginalized groups experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think about sort of the um, I think this is from Starhawk of, of the reclaiming tradition yes. of like magic as a way to shift perception. And mm -hmm. I think something that I really appreciate about your work is that it's not just about healing the um the pain in an individual in a body it's kind of it, it kind of 
asks um, the wider culture to heal their ideas about a thing that has been harming a group of people. Yeah, I mean, and I think when it became really clear as I was getting deeper into researching, I think like I started with the spirit of inquiry, which is why do we do why do we do this with food? Why Mm -hmm. are people living like this? Why are people controlling what they eat and heavily monitoring how they move and and all this stuff? Why do we have eating disorders? Why are, you know, 68 million Americans dieting every year? And when I was really open to looking at the answer and finding the answer without as fearlessly as I could, it all led to the history of Western civilization. It led to the history of the United States. It led to colonialism, um, slavery, how we do capitalism as a result Mm -hmm. of those things, white supremacy, um, you know, uh, like hierarchy in general. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and so, yeah, there's no way The, the thing is, right? Like people, don't understand like with diet culture um, that it's a metaphor um, that the like that individual behaviors don't happen in a vacuum um, and that we can trace that drive to control how much we eat and that drive to control our bodies. We can trace that to a history of like Judeo-Christian Um, like preoccupation with work and the idea that white people are better than people of color and the idea that, I mean, like all of those things are connected Um, that like every single time we control what we're doing, we are reinscribing systems of hierarchy, systems of um, positioning mind over matter, which Mm -hmm. is ultimately about white heteropatriarchy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's even like entrenched in our language. I was just thinking about how we think, you know, you, you can kind of think of the words like light versus heavy, or you can think of the words like mm. acute versus obtuse, you know, like yeah. it's so, like so entrenched in our culture and 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 these sort of like biases yes. that we build into our worldviews. Yes. I also want to mention real quick um, that you picked a bunch of songs for us today. Yes. So we are going to be playing part of Virgie's um, personal witch canon. as you like to call it (laughs) Um, we're going to take a song break and uh, we'll come back with more from Virgie Tovar but um, you can tweet at us at Witch Radio if you have any questions for us we're also on Instagram at Witch Radio and this is Nina Simone with My Way you're listening to Astral Projection Radio Hour on BFF.fm The end is near, and so I got to face the final curtain, curtain. Friends, I'll say it clear and state my case of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full of travel. And every highway and more, much more than this, I did it my way. Yes, regrets, I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. I did what I had to do 
and saw it through without exemption. I planned each chart of course, each careful footstep along the byway.
Listening to Astral Projection Radio Hour on BFF.fm, Best Frequencies Forever. We have a special guest with us today. Virgie Tovar is here. Hi, Virgie. Hi. I want to ask you um, could you talk a little bit about the word fat? I'm interested in. The fact that this word is kind of used as a slur, and I'm also interested in, in kind of uh, a reclamation of it from your perspective, and if you could talk about that. Yeah, um, so I grew up um, in a fat family. 
as a fat baby and a fat kid. And uh, I was not I was in, I was not introduced to the word fat until I was um, about four years old. As far as I can tell, the first time I heard it was when I was in preschool and it was this it was the it was this boy his name was Josh and Josh was the boy who looked up all the girls skirts and I always I mean as an adult I'm really struck by the connection of like this person who was non-consensually kind of doing this weird stuff and this being the first person who taught me that who taught me the who used the word fat to try to hurt me. And I didn't have any context for the word at the time, but he said it with such hatred. And I knew that it was a bad word, but I hadn't learned fat phobia yet. So that word kind of, I was like, oh, that's weird. He's saying something, a word that I don't know, but he's saying it in a way that's supposed to be hurtful and okay. And then I remember going on to kindergarten at the age of five and that word being a part of my life every day from then on until I graduated from high school and uh, you know, every single day, I mean, like I was, um, you know, really quite, I mean, I, I really do call it abuse. I mean, I think people use this word bullying and I find that that word is quite reductive. Um, I, I find that what was really going on was sort of a systematic um, kind of abuse that mm-hmm. was meant to utterly dehumanize me. Um, and so, Really, that word is associated with trauma. That word is associated with shame. That word is associated with like wanting to disappear and and doing everything in my power to attempt to become not that word. Mm. You know, most of my formative years from the age of like five to almost 20, you know, a little over 20 years old, um, I spent every day of my life trying to become not that word. And I feel like that was my primary purpose in life. Oh. <clears throat> and so to then, you know, be introduced to um, the idea that this could be a word that I could use to describe something about myself. That was a word that I could lovingly, um, you know, reclaim was really radical. I think that I don't know. I mean, I remember sort of recognizing, right? And I think this is something that a lot of marginalized groups do is they choose the behaviors and words that have been most commonly used to dehumanize them. And they um, they actually modulate, they reclaim them as a way to beat the person to the punchline, which mm-hmm. is a form of playing with power. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I mean, it's a word that I now use with a lot of, I mean, it's, it's odd. I mean, there are a lot of moments where I, I say it with affection, but a lot of times it's just kind of a word, just like red or blue or any number of things. Um, it doesn't have this incredible um, sense of potency every single time I say it. So it's kind of, I think through the frequency of saying it, um, it kind of loses some of a little bit of the power that it once had to really truly silence me. And push me into submission. And I think, you know, I'm at this point in my healing process where, I mean, there was a time, I mean, obviously, if somebody is saying it to me, as you mentioned, right, people still do use it as a slur. And people at times attempt to use it against me in that way. And um, I'm kind of at this point in my healing, not always on my best days, where 
I kind of am able to see them as wounded mm. um, rather than myself as wrong. Um, and, and, and almost like, you know, and there are some moments and I often tell people this is a really useful thought exercise. Like imagine that someone came up to you on the street today and started yelling with righteousness that you couldn't drive because you had a uterus. You wouldn't say you wouldn't, it wouldn't ruin your day. You would be like, what a strange person. How odd. (laughs) (laughs) And I think it's useful to like recast that yeah. in the around fat where it's like how strange that person's from another time too bad for them they must have no friends or that like somebody's <laughs> like somebody's like physical features like bother them you know yes. where I'm just like, what is it to you? like who what is it to you yes. what someone else looks like no uh. absolutely yeah no and how sad that you can only see the world in the yeah. way that you've been see- taught oh. to see it mm. and like there's i mean i just feel like i mean i've, I've used this metaphor a lot when i've or i've talked about this but it's like when we think about how we're taught to see beauty we're taught to look at a masterpiece through a pinhole right you know i mean it's just it's horrible mm-hmm. how do you advise i have run into this um and I've tried with varying degrees of success and failure uh, to like have a real conversation in real time when people use the word fat as derogatory, either yeah. about themselves or about someone else. Mm. Um, but I'm curious, like what what you would advise or what your experience has been like, how do you how to have an effective conversation with somebody about like what's what's really going on when yeah. you when you use the word that as a slur or as um as something derogatory yeah i mean i think there's a few mechanisms like one that it could just be interrogation like what's wrong with that or what do you think Mm -hmm. about that word or why do you think that's a bad thing um and i think you know sometimes it's useful to offer a counterpoint Mm -hmm. um like i don't feel that way um, this is how I feel about this thing. Um, and I think also really encouraging people to, I think, interrogate their own mm-hmm. views. Like, have you ever heard of this thing? Have you ever heard of, you know, body positivity or fat activism or any number of things? Um, and has it occurred to you that this, I mean, like, for example, one thing that comes up a lot in conversation is, what do I do when these conversations come up in like the workplace or someplace mm. where I'm not really sort of, it's a little bit more taboo to have a deep political conversation. Well, and it's in, like, it's insidious and in how it slips into just yes. more, like, people will be like, Oh, I can't have that extra cookie running. I don't want to get fat. And I, right. and I even right. in, like the workplace, I'm like, well, What's wrong with yeah. the thing? Why get, what's or even wrong when with someone finishes eating, yeah. you know, and they just, they're like, oh, I feel so fat. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like, yeah. It's, so, sort of like, it's so insidious yeah. and so just everywhere, you know, like that people will, it'll, they say it without thinking. Yeah. You know? I mean, this is a major thing. Like when I started working with um, people one-on-one, especially women, but one of the most shocking things to find was when I asked them, where is the place you get most triggered where because I mean I work with people who are recovering from chronic dieting or are recovering from disordered eating um, I don't necessarily see them as totally separate things I see disordered eating as on the spectrum with dieting behavior um, they're not in separate buckets in my mind but certainly there's degrees of extremity um, but anyway I'm like where do you get triggered the most and I I swear 
I really did think they were going to say the dating world, the doctor, any number of places. And they always say the workplace. Mm. And it is that seemingly innocuous chatter that like, oh, you were so good. Oh, my God. Look at you with that salad. You're so good. Oh, you went for a walk during lunch. Oh, you're so good. You're so much better than me. <laughs> oh, this is bringing also, up a lot of yeah. like, <laughs> yes. like lunch shaming yes. memories for me. <laughs> Seriously, I remember being, I, I'm a freelancer now, so then we only judge my my eating habits is my cat, but um, <laughs> we, we, have, we have a similar mentality. But I remember being somewhere and I like ate, I brought in a big thing of pasta for lunch and my coworker's like, ugh, must be nice right? to like oh, be right. able to eat pasta for lunch. And I'm like, I don't, it's just food. Like, Yes, <laughs> yes. Well, and I think that there's a lot of um, one thing. So, I mean, I even made this like weird YouTube video about it because it just felt so compelling. It's called, I will not cut you a smaller slice of cake. <laughs> Um, yes. It's about the, it's about like the gendered <laughs> performance around like getting the smallest piece of cake. Oh my god, seriously! And Give like me the, the hierarchy. Biggest piece of cake. Yes, <laughs> but like the way that it's like women interacting with usually other women yeah. and food surveilling and policing and there's sort of like a. I mean, it really is. I mean, I think of it as like you know Michelle Foucault would call it like the panopticon, right. like how everybody's being watched and you're watching yourself, watching others, yeah. <laughs> and and I think that um. It's interesting. I mean, there's also, and this was something that has come up more than once that I find really fascinating and is absolutely. So So one thing that people often don't understand is that it's restriction that causes strange behavior around mm-hmm. food, including disordered eating. Yep. Um, it, people think that they are addicted to food like in a vacuum. Um, no, it turns out that if there weren't like, wait, in cultures that don't have fat phobia, they don't have restrictive eating disorders. Right. Yeah. They don't, they're not like something that are that have existed through all time. Um, certainly, like, you know, there's all kinds of disorders that have existed all like throughout time. But um, but eating disorder is not one of them, uh, like in, the, in like anorexia and bulimia, et cetera. Um, but anyway, so what you'll see is whenever restriction around food is a normal expected part of life, you will see odd pathological food behavior. Um, one example that came up that comes up quite frequently, and it's so specific, it's odd that I've heard it from so many people, is like there's a person, often a woman at their office who every day or frequently brings in candy or has a bowl or some kind of receptacle on which she pours all of the stuff and then she goes around and tries to pressure everybody to take some and then she kind of gets almost like a proxy experience of eating through other people um and but is it's kind of like weirdly coercive it's like it's, it's manipulative and coercive but it's also like deeply clearly like a product of not feeling like they can eat any of this stuff um and so like that kind of stuff and i think you know one of the things that's really useful in terms of a way to deal with it is actually to really offer to your coworkers or potentially your hr person your boss is like you know we do not know who in this workplace has an eating disorder background And I would include in that umbrella people who are really struggling with dieting and who are dieting chronically. Um, We do not know who is in this space. And it is a violation of privacy to ask everybody who has had an eating disorder to out themselves. And so we just should presume that there's at least one person in this workplace who might be triggered and we need to act from that place. Um, And I found that that's a really useful, I mean, it's like, it's not perfect, um, but I think that 
it's a good place to start, especially when there's a room and you don't want to be going into your the depths of your own personal archive right. to try and feel safe at work, which is someplace, right? You don't really have honestly, it's a space that for a lot of us, we don't get to control. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to go to work. A lot of people have children or like family members they take care of. They really cannot opt out of work. And so it really is, it it does then become this environment that's deeply upsetting to a person potentially and that they can't get away from. Yeah, yeah I'm just thinking about all the times I just slipped out of the office to eat lunch alone. <laughs> so yes. I, I wouldn't have people like, Right, at, commenting, right. Right. commenting like, on my sandwich or whatever. Policing you, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Can I read you a listener question? Yes. Oh, yeah, it's related. Yeah, this is related to what we're talking about. And this is from Lily Sloan, who, uh, as of today, is the host, former host of uh, Radical Advice here on BFF.fm. She had her last episode today, mm. so bon voyage, Lily. Yeah, such a great show. But she sends in a question, and Lily has um, a background in therapy. She says, Even though I intellectually believe something different, and even work with eating disorders and body image issues as a therapist, it's still incredibly hard to get past hating my body and wishing it was different. The main difference is that now I don't act on that impulse. I'm just uncomfortable without the ability to use the old methods to, quote, fix it. How do you work with yourself in these moments? Yeah, I mean, this gets to the depth of work. Um, I think Mm. there's different components to recovering from diet culture. And I mean, to be fair, blanket statement, right? It's very hard to recover from an abuse that is actively happening yeah. all the time around you, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, like we need to understand diet culture as a form of abuse, a cult mm-hmm. of cultural form of abuse that, you know, and fat phobia is kind of, you know, part of the, it is the stick part of diet culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and diet culture is entirely tied to like capitalism, neoliberalism, all these kinds of things. Um, there's different, there's different interventions that are occurring in the as you get deeper into the work right you it starts often with an intellectual intervention which is what lily is talking about Mm -hmm. um the ability to imagine and know something isn't right Mm -hmm. um and the ability to even potentially dispense advice and and guidance um from that ideological place and that's really powerful um but a lot of people don't realize really that what what's happening is that it's it really is a wound um, diet culture, fat phobia, these are wounds. Um, they are not just ideas. You know, it's not, it's not just like, oh, you know, some people are better than others. And it's just an idea. These things have massive psychic implications. Mm-hmm. These things live in our bodies and we're harmed by them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and I think that right, as with anything around which we have a wound, there are multiple things that need to happen to to heal it, to allow it to close up. Um, and this is really the deeper work of recovering from diet culture. Um, I think a big one, a lot of people don't realize this, but leaving diet culture is a very grief ridden process mm. because in some ways you're doing a number of things. Number one, you are creating grief because you have to accept that you live in a culture that is harming people and has harmed you in this way. And in order, and really to see it, you have to be willing to critique it, which is fundamentally a taboo behavior. 
then you have to accept, especially, I, think, I really think this is true for women, feminine people, you really have to accept that a major gendered expectation is something you are no longer willing to do. Mm. So you are talking about losing privilege. And if you have access, like if you're a white person mm. or a straight person or a cis person, um, right, these are major points of privilege and access for people. And if you're someone who is one of those in those one of those categories and you are stepping out of diet culture, you are stepping away from access. Mm. And even if you see that access is insidious, it still hurts. Um, we need to understand, right, that like even if we can intellectually accept that our culture is deeply problematic, our culture is still in our minds, our family. And in the same way that a lot of us know everything that's wrong with our family, we will not a single day on this earth that we live, we will not stop wanting their love yeah. and their acceptance. Even if we intellectually know like, oh my God, I'm never going to get that or whatever. We're oh, like some part of us is always going to seek that. And and I do see society as an extension of that. It's sure. normal for humans to want love and acceptance from the people around yeah, them. Yeah. And to sort of say like, I'm stepping away actively from doing behavior that's going to get me that is is really radical and i think the the i have a couple more thoughts but like the other grief point is you have to grieve the future body the, the future that you thought you were going to have mm. as a thin person or like as a different person um and it is really hard to accept i and i, I mean i know this pain intimately it is so hard to let go of the idea that at some point in the future, you're going to be in the kind of body that is universally accepted and loved. Because mm-hmm. um, that's the dream. That's what diet culture is selling. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, right, like the, and then once the gr- grief is so integral to recognizing that you have a wound and it's so integral to healing that wound. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that it's a very long process, but it starts with accepting that this thing really hurt you. And that you need to do the work to grieve the things that you lost, right? And I mean, like, sorry, there's one more grief point, which is like all the moments you have to grieve the moments that you lost yep. to this thing. Mm-hmm. And that's hurts. Yeah. It hurts to be like, that wasn't fair. That wasn't okay. And 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 yet that's what happened. And there's no large scale system yeah. that is corroborating my experience. The large scale system is still telling me that I'm stepping out of something that's there for my own self, like self-improvement and my own quote unquote health, you know. Um, so stepping out in in critique of the culture is 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 an act of. It's it, anyway, it, it's like it's an act of treason. It's I mean, it's, I think especially for women and feminine people. Yeah. But that's my thought, like the long haul scary but very meaningful grief and then the, the healing that comes from from when we open up that grief experience mm. could you talk a little bit more about this like time travel aspect of, of yeah that yeah experience i mean i think for a lot of fat people we are consistently living in the future in our minds um, like th- this is sort of exemplified by the idea that like, oh, you know, in 20 pounds or 40 pounds or 10, pounds, whatever it is, in a certain number of pounds, I will be able to go on a date or go on the beach oh, or God. wear a bathing suit or smile in a picture or wear this outfit I love or wear pink lipstick or whatever. Um, like there's an entire world happening 
um, in the future and or the past or I, the past. I right. was a slave to that for years. Yes. It makes me so sad. I mean, yeah. And I mean, I think the past where it's like, you know, maybe there was a time when you were at a smaller size, right? Like you weight cycled in a certain way um, and it worked for you temporarily. Like most weight loss, right? Like yep. like it's usually like right. We call it in, in my industry, we call it weight cycling because that's the more accurate term, right? You're losing and gaining the same amount of weight over and over again um, and or the same weight over and over again. Uh, anyway, so like right living in that past moment that one moment where maybe you were at your smallest and everybody treated you a certain way and and everybody was so kind to you and maybe you were in the depths of disordered eating or whatever you were doing like in my case right I think about the moments when I've gotten the most love romantically and etc have been the moments in the depths of my disordered eating when I was like starving myself and I was physically uncomfortable all the time because I was hungry or exhausted or I was irritable because I was hungry and exhausted Mm. um and and like the lived reality of that so I think that there's no point at which right there's like there's this real push fat phobia really does push us out of our bodies um like and and i think it has a lot to do with the fact that it's so painful to be in our bodies that we'll do almost anything to sort of be in some other some other time and space and i think that that's like i think of the metaphor of like the fat person as the time traveler that's kind of what i'm talking about Yeah. yeah yeah and it doesn't just happen within the fat person it happens with um people perceiving this person as like um, maybe existing in some some future self, right? Yes, yeah. totally. Yes. Yeah. Well, we're going to play some more of your music. And when we come back, I'd like to talk uh, about about the healing part of this. And yes. About, about sensuality and yes. about intuition. And, yes. yes, yes. And yes. Um, but we're going to play some more of your personal witch canon. Um you can tweet at us at Witch Radio. We're also on Instagram at Witch Radio. If you have any questions for Virgie, uh, this is Aretha Franklin with respect. You're listening to Astral Projection Radio Hour on BFF.fm. <laughs>
to Astral Projection Radio Hour on BFF.FM, Best Frequencies Forever. We have a special guest with us today. Virgie Tovar is here. And we've Hi. been talking a lot about um, healing from diet culture and um, fat activism, fat liberation. Um, and I want to move uh, into this, into the zone of healing. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think this is, this is very relevant to, to Beatrix. Uh, you are a Taurus. Mm. Yes. Can you talk about how you identify with that and how you kind of, um, you know, use the, uh, the sensuality and sort of, um, Venus aspects. In your, your Instagram work. is so yes. Taurian. I, love I know. It. It's I the know. Taurus inspo. It really is. I would like to, before answering that question head on, I have to share that I recently found a set of astrological pencils at this tiny cafe in Portland, Maine called Little Woodford's. <laughs> and um, I had never seen anything like this before. It was like a pencil set for your astrological sign Whoa. and i had never seen an astrological product that was so so dead on <laughs> and each pencil had a different kind of like taurian quality yeah. and so one of them was like i'll have champagne with that <laughs> another one is like just call me a dictator and I, <laughs> wow. it's like i am and it was something like i'm inflexible because i am correct <laughs> <laughs> and just a series of other of other really great, very incisive pen pencil things. Um, so this actually kind of goes back. So I am like a Taurus Gemini cuss. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I share a birthday with famous. Um, so so like my birthday is is like I am high likelihood of being a dictator or a guru or oh. a cult leader. Mm. This is a Taurian thing. Mm -hmm. Um. And my, I share a birthday with both 
Pol Pot and Malcolm Whoa. X. Oh. Um, and so it, it's interesting, right? Like I, I definitely, even before I knew that, I knew that inside of me was like this kind of, you know, I think I, I act decisively and I think that, right, like I am always seeking earthly delight associated with ideological shift. Mm. Um, so for me, like, like my politics have to be fun and they ha- they have to feel good mm-hmm. um and i think also like even certainly re-instagram the way that i do the work that i do which is like with a lot of tiramisu <laughs> and a lot of cheetah print um <laughs> i think there is that kind of real connection to my body mm-hmm. and and loving and i think also right like this real affection for delicious things and experiences that make my body feel good and and clothing that makes my body feel good um and that is sexy and uh and I just I feel like that is a hard boundary for me like I'm like life has to feel really good and I think right like also something I've been sharing with people that is often like they've never thought of it this way is I'm like justice is joyful justice is ecstatic like if we're not doing all this work for that outcome, then we're not doing anything right, right? Like mm. if like if we're not all, for me, it's like when I envision a future, it is a future in which everyone, everyone has access to a sense of like pleasure and delicious things and mm. a sense of safety in their body and the outfits that they love. There's a whole lot of chihuahuas. There's a lot of hot tubs. Um, and I'm like, that's when I think about my future. And I do the magic of like future making in my head. Um it looks like that, you know, and so and I think that's a very Torian vision of the future. Hot mm. tubs and tiramisu and chihuahuas. Oh, yes. And a lot of like <laughs> silk moo-moos and stuff. And good lighting. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I think I once uh, DM'd Beatrix a, uh, a post from you where you were you had taken yourself on vacation somewhere and you're like, I'm posting this from a heavy metal bar with my pet cactus and my tarot cards. <laughs> and, yes. and, and I was like, I like sent it to Beatrix. I was like, this is, she has yeah. to be a Taurus, right? <laughs> <laughs> Taking yourself on your dream vacation is a very Taurus thing to do. Yeah. That's why I put the song Honeymooning Alone on this playlist. Because yes. I was like, Honeymooning Alone sounds great. <laughs> yes. Oh my God, yes. I trust myself to design the trip of my dreams <laughs> and eat whatever I want <laughs> and lounge around in caftans and yes! crumbs all over me and who cares? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You're only invited if you can like roll with my program for. Yeah. Or you're bringing caviar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'd, I'd like to ask you about, um, you know, you use tarot in your practice. Um, I want to ask, ask you about uh, about tarot and your relationship to it and uh, your relationship to intuition. Yes. Um, so I got really interested in tarot um, through my friend Michelle T. Um, Love Michelle T. <laughs> yes. She, it, she was my, I mean, she became a person who really, you know, she is, she has been and was a catalyst for major life change for me. Mm. Um, I remember one of the first times I ever hung out with her, she was like, 
She was like, are you an adult child of alcoholics? Because you have this like highly intuitive but traumatized view of the world. And I was like, what? It was like, what? it was like the perfect. Wow. But she does it with such a plum and grace. Yeah. <laughs> She's so incisive and so generous. Um, She's one of my earliest uh, like astrological influences. Like the horoscopes oh, we read I on our that. show. Those are the first horoscopes I ever read were when she wrote them for the Bay Guardian in like the 90s. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh my God. I wish I could read those. I'm sure they've got to be somewhere archived. They're, maybe they're, they're on the so internet. Because yeah. I feel like the internet has things from the 90s. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's amazing. I'm going to have to go. I'm going to have yeah. to go back and find that. I, th- I think that she just, you know, I never feel judged. I only feel like she's ever like a portal of information mm. and some like an insight into my life. And so, um, and she was she was one of the first people who kind of helped me not be afraid of witchery. Mm. Um, I think that she just made it so fun and grounded. And again, one of the first things she did was like read my birth chart. Um, she always offered to read my cards whenever an important moment was coming up. And it was just really powerful to see that representation that modeling mm-hmm. um anyway so i kind of want to name name check her because she was really important in that process but um i think i think it is interesting going back to diet culture which i see as a form of trauma absolutely in in my life and fat phobia and then also growing up in an abusive sort of addiction um i mean right like it's complicated my house was very loving but very unsafe Mm -hmm. um so and and so it was just like this interesting combination um and so i do i do have a lot of trauma um i'm also like a person of color and i come from an immigrant family and um so uh, for a lot of people who have experienced a lot of trauma, specifically we'll talk about diet culture and fat phobia, um, one of the things that diet culture really successfully does and seeks to do is to undercut intuition. Mm-hmm. Um, like diet culture fundamentally undercuts our sacred relationship to our body and to food. Oh, amen. Like human <laughs> beings have a natural and sacred relationship to those things. Yep. We are biologically designed to lean into them, to get pleasure from them. Um, And diet culture hijacks all of that, which is like unconscionable, uh, really. And so, but like it's very successfully through undercutting our relationship to those things, it creates a consistent state of being gaslit. And uh, which is right, like when um, when you're caused to doubt your experience of reality, right? Like I often point to people, right? What is the number one thing that diet culture does? Like gaslighting item number one is it asks you, are you sure you're really hungry? And are you sure you're really hungry for that? Mm. Um, and I'm sure, I mean, most of us have been asked that question at least once. Oh, yeah. Um, and so what happens is that, again, like through that undercutting, consistent undercutting and gaslighting, the undercutting of the intuition is one of the worst outcomes of diet culture. Like it is about, it is about, and for me, recovering from diet culture is fundamentally about recuperating intuition. Mm-hmm. Um, and tarot is a fantastic tool in developing. And I mean, right. If you think of intuition as something that we all innately have, but that can be developed through certain activities and exercises, right? Like, um, I, tarot is like a really, really valuable one. Um, and I, in my own recovery, I, I don't, I can't say that I necessarily took up tarot as in hopes of having, um, a healing experience around diet culture and my trauma around that. Um, 
But of course it has affected that. Um, like the stories that are told in the tarot are the stories of our culture or the stories about what it means to be a person in our world. Um, it, it, you know, and I think that I remember having a lot of fear around the tarot because I saw it, you know, at one point there was a lot of kind of this sense of like, oh, I don't know about engaging with this like metaphysical entity. But then I went on to read about the history of tarot, which was so connected to a game, right? a game that was meant to improve intuition, a game that became um, stigmatized, that became criminalized through the rise of patriarchy. Um, and, and it was through that very grounded reading that I was able to approach it without expectation of anything besides this simple thing that people have done for a long time. Um, and, and so, yeah, I do see it as really valuable in recuperating my sense of humanity and my sense of self-trust. And those things were of course, deeply undercut by living and actively engaging in dieting and diet culture for like 20 years. Mm. Yeah, I just read uh, a book called Initiated, which is written by Amanda Yates Garcia, who also yes. goes by the Oracle of L.A. Yes. And she talks a lot about um, how for her and for a lot of witches, witchcraft is kind of a portal to regaining a sort of bodily intuition mm-hmm. and bo- embodiment Yeah, um, that is kind of undercut by the patriarchy that, that kind of... Um, prioritizes the mind yeah it kind of makes you um be body forgetting to kind of go through life more as like a a floating brain or a pair of eyes or like it kind of like prioritizes what can be seen and what can be thought yes yes well and i mean i think right like that is that fundamentally is about disembodiment yeah that mm-hmm. fundamentally is about not being present um right because like and, it, and you think about it right like injustice is not a, t- a tolerable state when you are present mm-hmm. literally and like i mean that right and the implications of that are this culture will do literally anything to keep you in the cycle of disembodiment because we will not as humans as sentient creatures like we would not be able to f- abide an injustice yeah. at the level of the scale that we're looking at on a daily level of living here in the United States, just the United States, right? Like um, we would not be able to abide it like in our bodies if we were present. Mm. And I think it becomes a cycle, right? We're taught how to disembody and we're, we're presented with an inju- unjust situation in which we seek to disembody. Mm. So it's like these two, these two things, these two forces that are pushing, pushing, pushing. Um, you know, I mean, I think that, for me, I can speak to myself like the more embodied I become, the more present I become, mm-hmm. the more healed I become, the more human I feel. Mm, I love that. Mm. The more all of the stuff that everyone thinks of as normal, just it doesn't make any sense. Right. And I, mm. I even think I think what's so frustrating to me and I'm constantly constantly like talking about this and thinking about this is like there is this kind of there is this real premium on like mind over matter and data and the observable but at the end of the day what i've discovered being in the depths of my work like working with so many people knowing so much history having spent my like forty thousand hours whatever the hell it is (laughs) like doing this deep 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 research around weight stigma around what it does to people around health around Mm. the history right like there is a whole lot of cherry picking mm-hmm. this idea that we're like that there's this data driven minority and everybody mm-hmm. else is just like a you know an, an undereducated ill that like that's just absurd like i mean i literally have had to get into 
arguments about the fact that like people will you know, reputable people like doctors or whatever, like, you know, will will only look at one fact mm. instead of looking at the, the nine other facts that are actually right. far more important. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's so like it's like scientism. Yeah. I've, I've heard that yes. word be used totally. as like, it's sort of like the faith in, you know, the so-called, um, I, I mean, I don't, I don't mean this to be something that undercuts science as a process as as like a process of discovery yes, right yeah it's like this faith in like a rigidity about yeah. about science yes. and about data um and i i find that that also undercuts what um i've experienced as as a very um the sort of very central and spiritual aspects of of math and science that are often just kind of tossed aside as, as yes. kind of like these are these are like feminine concerns. They're like yes. these are things that like to me are integral to my experience of of those things in the way that I relate to them and and to say that those things aren't relevant is also like part of this patriarchal control. Absolutely. Right? Yes. I mean I just think about the, you know, it's like, well, if we look at the data and we acted on the data, the data indicate that when a person feels safe and loved and they have access to the resources they need, they thrive. Right. Um, and so if we're a culture that believes in people thriving, um, the data would indicate that we need to have a largely different, vastly different, like we need to demilitarize, we need to not have a prison system, right? Like mm-hmm. all the, that's what the data would suggest. Um, you know, and I just, <laughs> it just frustrated me how I'm like, I don't know how this, I mean, I've looked at the numbers, I've run the numbers, it's my business to run the numbers and <laughs> this is what I've found and, and this is not the, this is not the world that I'm seeing. And so I do find that this, that empiricism and data and this preoccupation in in that very specific way um, is, is, is about manipulation. It's Mm -hmm. about gaslighting. It's not about actual anything, you know? And so um, I think it has been, I'll admit like there, there are moments where I feel ideologically very isolated Mm -hmm. because I'm like, wait, so I spent a bunch of time being like, this is, I can feel in my body. This doesn't work. And then in my work, I was forced to really Mm -hmm. look at the data really I mean I was just so many people wanted that from me mm-hmm. and I was like all right maybe I'll come up with something totally different and I did all the work and I found the data and now I'm still it's it's still I'm still the minority voice because I'm refusing to cherry pick the data to corroborate a specific kind of yeah. worldview mm-hmm. um anyway I could go on on and on and on about that but do boo. you do you have what advice would you have I want to go back to a minute because there's something you said yes. struck like struck a bell so deeply in me because I've thought this so many times about um, d- the dieting culture undercutting intuition. Yes. And that was probably one of the biggest revelations of my life thus far. And to me is the most singular like subversive act I have ever committed was like breaking up with diet culture, yes. throwing away. I was, a, I mean, I was somebody who weighed myself every day at a certain point. Yeah, me and too. And like lost the same, gained the same amount of weight all the time. And part of it was this curiosity of, I was like, I, I think I just want to learn to trust my body. Yeah. And I was, and it was this whole journey and I was so shocked by how disembodied I had become from my yes. own body and my own intuition. And I was like, and the voices that would come up that because I, you know, where I I would hear that sort of old criticism of like, well, do you really want to eat that thing? Right, you know, and I was like, right. well, actually, I do, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and I, yes. and I and I was sort of a process for me of, of, of like one of the things I really worked on early on was like, I'm going to divorce all 
judgment and like connotation of good or bad from yes. all food. Yes. And that was a big revolutionary step for me. And it was just sort of a like, am I hungry? Am I full? Does this food feel yes. good right now? Does it feel bad? I mean, like not good and bad and like unhealthy or not healthy, but like does, does, does eating this make me feel good right now? Yeah. In whatever mm-hmm. pl- pleasure sense. But I, so I'm yes. curious, like, and I found it such a profound shift. But when I've tried to explain it to people, they look at me like I'm an, I'm an alien. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think people fundamentally, right, we're fed this um, idea that if we do not control every single thing that we eat and how we move, that we will not only eat every single thing in sight with no end in sight, and then we will become someone who is entirely unrecognizable and who is, in fact, a monster. That is what diet culture teaches <laughs> yes. us. Yeah. Um, that they're, you know, and I think like what's really, and, and people do genuinely live in terror. I mean, I, I have a lot of, I know plenty of people I've worked with many people who are their worst fear is that if I eat that second cookie, yep. that there will be like, yeah. I will be, you know, I will eat 5,000 cookies or 10,000 cookies or 20,000 cookies or whatever. And I mean, I think that, and, and I really, it does really speak to that disembodiment, right? It does really speak to that unmoored sense of existence Mm. um right and so and i I think what's what people often again to go back something i mentioned earlier what people don't realize is the weird behavior around food is exactly and entirely tied to restricting yeah people don't act weird around (laughs) food unless they're told that they can't have it yeah Mm. um and so right like I, i think there is a real um sense of there there is a period of recuperation and I do I often tell people right like what would it look like to have a relationship to food and movement that was based in pleasure Ugh, that was based yes. in intuition right like those kinds of things yeah um and then sort of trusting right I think for a lot of people the longer you've been disembodied the bigger of a trust exercise that yeah, really is so true. um and so of course it can be highly intimidating but at the end of the day and I mean I've talked to so many nutritionists like people who have really done the work and I mean I'm not talking about the nutritionist who's like losing weight by any means necessary is the way to nutrition. I'm talking about people who have really sat down with weight science have discovered, right. That like at the end of the day, we largely cannot control our body size. Mm-hmm. Um, like one of the most staggering statistics that I came upon that I think really does surprise people is that they discovered that, you know, the likelihood of a naturally fat, they do, they did this research with women only, but like um, the, the, the likelihood of a naturally fat woman ever becoming a a normal size or quote unquote normal size, like thin woman is less than 1%. It's 0.8%. Like to sustain that, to stay that, Mm -hmm. to become that size and to stay that size is less than 1%. It's 0.8%. There is no medical practice that has a 0.8% success rate that is, that is consistently (laughs) prescribed to people except dieting. Um, And so right, like, uh, I mean, anyway, so like I think when when we really but but to go back to sort of like the psychologists and the nutritionists and like the folks I've spoken to who understand weight science in addition to food and whatever, um, there's a lot of really striking things. Like, first of all, we need to be able to have a restriction free relationship to food. Um, we need to be able to re and that creates space for us to reorient ourselves to 
our natural desire and aversion um, mm-hmm. states, right? Um, I think also we need to create a, like a reality in which even when we do um, like, like for example, right? Like I know that I have an allergy to nuts and most of the time I'm like, it's not anaphylactic, right? If it were anaphylactic, I'd be like, no nuts, right? <laughs> um, right. But like I have a mild allergy to nuts and I'm like, sometimes I mean, for the most part, I don't eat nuts. So I'm like, I don't like the outcome of this. I get like these really intense, really intense boils when I eat nuts. And I'm like, you know, it's just not worth it for the. But occasionally there's like something really amazing. And I'm like, all right, this weird boil that's going to grow on my butt <laughs> is worth it. And I'm like, I'm not, I'm not going to have a judgment. I'm just like, this is just kind of like yeah. a cost benefit analysis. Yes. I'm not a better person because I did or didn't eat yeah. the nuts. And I really, I really sort of think, right, like when we, we can have that relationship with food around everything, not just things that we, we may or may not be allergic to, but like we can actually create like an, a judge, a judgment free yeah. relationship to food that is largely, mo- that is motivated by pleasure um and actually that is the path to having a normal relationship to food um i know this is like wait this is just like shocking on a grand cultural (laughs) scale but it's like it's actually pretty simple um yeah and then similar to movement right like when we recuperate our relationship to the ability and, and i think right what happens when we decide to stop dieting is we reclaim movement we reclaim food as something that is no longer a social tool to to essentially convey that we're willing to be on board with controlling and being submissive right because like when we're dieting we are controlling our our bodies in the name of the culture's expectations for our bodies so we become the agent of the culture and its control um so when we reclaim these things we actually we we're like guess what culture you're not the boss of me i'm the boss of me um and i know what's best and and i think that that prospect is really terrifying uh, um for people who have been told that they cannot trust their body they cannot trust their appetite they cannot trust what the things that they want and this has a deep connection to history a deep connection to colonialism mm-hmm. in particular right um because it goes back to you know the very earliest acts of violence that occurred in the United States, right? Like the ways in which a select group of land owning white men decided that they were the best kind of people and that they could commit violence against anybody who they judge was inferior. How was inferiority judged? Sure. There were arbitrary things like skin color, but behavior was a big one of was a big part of that, right? Like people who have an uncontrolled relationship to sex are bad and they're inferior and they're savage. People who have an uncontrolled relationship to food, same bad, savage mm-hmm. people who do not know how to like bootstrap their way into doing whatever by any means necessary are savage and we can do anything we want with them and we and we're living the reverberations of that and diet culture is very much a product of that like we get to treat people who we perceive as having an uncontrolled relationship to food mm. very poorly and this has total colonial ties um yeah wow that's, that's profound yeah um i want to ask about um this sort of so we recently taught a tarot class yes. together tarot in the body with the ruby and um i was wondering if you would talk about a, a bit about the sort of like journeying underworld uh of the persephone myth which is tied to the high priestess yeah and how you use that to talk about uh diet culture recovery 
yeah, um, I loved that we decided to focus on the High Priestess card, and I feel so connected to that card. Um, and I think, right, like, and I've certainly learned a lot about that card from other people. Um, but, you know, I think about the Persephone myth, which is so much about patriarchy. It's so much about, like, this idea of, um, you know, like right in the story of Persephone, Hades comes and kidnaps her. Um, and I think that there's something even there's a metaphor in that even right, like the way in which diet culture hijacks our lives, mm -hmm. our intuition, our desire. Um, right. And then but I think the power uh, right what Persephone then goes on to do is that she becomes like she goes from being a survivor, a you know, a victim to becoming the queen of her of the world that she inhabits half of the year um and right like there is this real power in like i i've increasingly been realizing more and more that we that there is a shadow side to every single thing and there is also a light there is a resiliency side uh to every single thing um and and the sort of trauma is not just this unique it's just this axiomatically horrible experience i mean it like certainly i wish no one had to experience trauma mm -hmm. but from trauma there is the possibility for incredible things to occur um right like because at the end of the day in a lot of ways trauma is wisdom um and and like when we interface with wisdom um we are transformed by it and we have the potential to transform others and things around us mm -hmm. um so when i think about how that persephone um, becoming the queen of the underworld, I really do, for me in the work of diet recovery, I think about the ways in which um, we can not only heal ourselves and in so become the queen of our own world, but we can heal others, right? We can, we can share the knowledge that we have um, because that's a lot of what uh, the high priestess card is about as well as like the alchemization of trauma mm -hmm. that um, the trauma becomes our entry point to in some ways like the magic of our survival mm -hmm. um and and like you know we can choose to right like when we when we realize what happened and we and we own it we can become these points of light we can become these models we can become these disruptors um and i don't know that that's the connection that i see with um with this right like the the alchemy we're seeing it happen happen right now right like we see a bunch of people who have been painfully touched by fat phobia and diet culture and we see these people right on social media and in, like i think about somebody like lizzo right like people who are in these incredible positions of visibility mm -hmm. and they are they are not only asserting that they belong in the conversation they are asserting a vision of thriving because mm -hmm. that is what happens when you deny someone's humanity for mm -hmm. forever and then their their access they have access to freedom right, right. like mm -hmm. it becomes this beautiful artistic execution of of something beyond just making it you know what i mean like mm -hmm. and so i think right these are the models of um like the like right that is i don't know i feel like there is this sort of like way in which like these be, they become the models of of like the strength and the beauty that can come out of these really, really intense experiences of trauma. Mm. Thank you. Yes. I'm going to play a couple more. Two, the last two of your 
jams. Ooh, I can't wait. Yeah, both of these are from none other than Stevie Nicks, Fleetwood Mac. <gasps> starting with Rhiannon. Yes! Um, you can tweet at us at Witch Radio. We're also on Instagram at Witch Radio. You're listening to Astral Projection Radio Hour on BFF.fm with special guest Virgie Tovar.
listening to Astral Projection Radio Hour on BFF.fm, Best Frequencies Forever. We have been with our special guest, Virgie Tovar, the past couple hours. Thank you so much for... Thank you. Yay. You were amazing. Thank this you. So, great. so much fun. So uh, before we go, because we're running out of time, I have uh, two last questions for you. Yes. One, we like to ask all of the witches that appear on the show about uh, personal rituals and creative rituals. And then after that, we want to give you some time to plug any upcoming events or anything you want to announce and how our listeners can find you if they haven't already yes. found you. Yes. Well, I have a few rituals. Um, one that I recently did is that I just unrolled a bunch of butcher paper and taped it to a wall in my bedroom. And I've decided that it's a portal. So whatever Yay. I write on it, it's just going to happen. I love it. Mm. I'm totally going home and doing that. Yeah, it's really powerful. <laughs> I've already like portaled love one that. thing and it kind of blows my mind already. Wow. Um, the next thing is, and this is like, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a very, um, I'm a person who has to process things cognitively cognitively and then and then it becomes cellularly incorporated mm. um so for people who are like that um i've noticed that um a ritual that i've been engaging in lately is being very very clear about where my resources are going um and making decisions so I, i've sometimes that we have these ongoing questions that never really we never really answer them they give us discomfort but we're like i don't know i don't know i don't know maybe this is uncomfortable but i haven't made a decision so what i just what i do now is that i set aside two hours during which i will adjudicate like ongoing existential questions or things that are really bothering me in terms of how i'm enacting with something like i'm interacting with someone or something over and over again um the, whatever the point of discomfort is i will sit down and i'll be like okay we're this is the adjudication period i'm going to look at the evidence i am going to decide on a pro or con and then i'm going to close the book and we're not re we're not re addressing this again until some deadline that i've decided mm. um and it's so helpful because it really does take out a lot of the stuff that you're like enacting but you doesn't feel great um the other thing that um, I wanted to share, I totally, no, yes, I remembered it. I remembered it. Um, a lot of people, in terms of like blockage, I write a lot. Um, I had this really intense blockage experience somewhat recently. And I kept, I, I realized in that experience that I was taught to treat creativity like an extraction process mm. like I was supposed to go into the mine and try and drill as hard as I could to get the gem like I needed to drink caffeine I needed to be in like a you know an entirely like sound new like no sound environment and I needed to punish myself into doing it like I have to sit here for eight hours and you have to do this and it doesn't mm. matter how unpleasant it is and I realized that creativity is not an extraction process mm. it's actually a generative process and you have to create an environment in which your vibration is raised right yeah, that's the yeah. best way to create creativity it's right? more of a nurturance <laughs> yes extraction exactly right? so yeah. actually what i discovered was not the kind of disciplinary and punitive yeah. attitude that got me out of the blockage it was actually like leaning into all the things that i liked i was like well what feels good i know mm. that like my soft fluffy socks feel good and when i'm warm it feels yeah. good and when i've got my blanket on it feels good and when i've got my crystals it feels good and you know when i've got my like cute little tea that i make in my special little tea thing that makes me feel good mm -hmm. and so really you know the ritual of 
creating pleasure intentionally as part of our creative process, our work process is really valuable. So that's a thing. And then in terms of plugging, um, I have a few new projects coming up. Um, My new book comes out May 1st. It's called The Self-Love Revolution, Radical Body Positivity for Girls of Color. And it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's good. It's a goodie. Um, then, uh, February, uh, the February 24th, I am launching my own podcast. It's called Rebel Eaters Club. I'm so excited. It's about our relationship to food, the history of food and this culture and our treatment of food. Certainly a lot of interrogation of diet culture. Mm -hmm. I'm talking to like restaurant critics and psychologists and uh, artists. And it's just really extraordinary. Um, You can find me online at virgitovar.com, V-I-R-G-I-E-T-O-V-A-R. And on Instagram at Virgie Tovar. Thank you so much, Virgie. Thank you. For being with us. This is the best show. I we are <laughs> going to play you out with uh, Queen Lizzo. Yes. You've been listening to Astral Projection Radio Hour on BFF.fm. And next up is the Hanging Garden Radio Show. And we will see you in 2020. <laughs> with special guest Danny Scoville for the first two shows. <laughs> I'm not the baddest bitch you like. <laughs> it ain't my fault.